All right, family, if you got your Bible, open to Revelation 15. That's where we're going to be today. Revelation 15. And as you're getting there, let me ask you a question. Here it is. What do you most appreciate about God? What is it about his character? What is it about his attributes that you appreciate the most, that you value the most? When I ask people that question, I usually get kind of the same answers from most people. People would say like his steadfast love, his grace and mercy, his provision and his generosity. All those are great things. But here's one answer I've never, ever gotten when I've asked that question. His wrath. Never once has anybody answered that. His justice. Never once. But here's the thing. If you are a Christian living in first century Rome, dealing with the persecution and suffering that those Christians lived under, if you're a Christian, one of the 300 plus million Christians alive today around the world who is persecuted for your faith, that's what you might answer. The justice of God, the, 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 the judgment of God even, because you would be looking forward to the fact that God one day is going to make right every wrong. One day God is going to reward faithfulness and judge wickedness. One day God is going to put an end to evil and pain and suffering in the world. You would be looking forward to that more than anything else. You don't hear that answer a lot in America, not in our culture, but you will in heaven. Today, we're going to hear the saints around the throne singing to God, and they're not going to be singing about his love and mercy and forgiveness. Today, they're going to sing, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. They're going to be singing a praise song celebrating his wrath. You ever heard a praise song celebrating God's wrath? I haven't heard that song yet. I, I tried to look for it. There's one I could find. It's about 350 years old. That's the, the best I could do. I was going to make us sing it this morning, and then I, was, I, I decided to have mercy on you. But God's justice really is good news. That's what I want to try and convince you of this morning. I've got 30 minutes to try and do that, to convince you that, man, all of us have experienced injustice, right? Maybe you've experienced some kind of injustice at work. Maybe you've experienced some kind of injustice from a government agency. Maybe you've experienced injustice at the hands of a former friend or even a former spouse. If so, it's really good news to know that that injustice won't go unanswered, not in eternity. You can trust God to carry out justice on your behalf. Family, do you know how much hope and peace that gives you to know that? God's justice is good news, really good news. So my goal is for us to celebrate it along with the saints in heaven today. So let's pray, and we'll see why God's justice is good. Father, I know that as we roll in here this morning, there's a lot of us who don't want to think about wrath and judgment. We want to think about the, the game that's going on right now, or think about fluffier, funnier, lighter things. But Lord, help us to see that the weighty things are the best things. Help us to see the goodness of your justice, most especially because you carried out your justice in our place on your son Jesus at the cross. Help us to see Jesus and to appreciate what Jesus experienced for us more than we ever have today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be in Revelation 15 and 16. And remember, John is is writing apocalyptic literature here, which is full of symbolism. 
It's kind of like first century version of Avatar. You know, maybe you saw the next Avatar. and They're, they're trying to make some comments about life here. And, and, the, and they're using giant blue people on another planet to make statements about people and problems on this planet. Well, that's basically what John's doing in Revelation. He's talking about real events, real problems, real people, but he doesn't want it to sound like a news story or a history book. He wants to fire up our imaginations and our emotions. And so he's going to use symbols and images to keep us engaged. So look at how he does it. Revelation 15, starting in verse 1. John says this. Then I saw another great and awe-inspiring sign in heaven. Seven angels with the seven last plagues, for with them God's wrath will be completed. I also saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had won the victory over the beast, its image and the number of its name, were standing on the sea of glass with harps from God. They sang the song of God's servant Moses and the song of the Lamb. Great and awe-inspiring are your works, Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you because your righteous acts have been revealed. So this is a prelude. This is John preparing us for what we're about to see because we're going to witness the final outpouring of God's wrath on the earth. It might seem cruel to you. It might seem unjust, unjust, but that's why the saints in heaven are reminding us now God's ways are true and just and good. Remember that. Verse 5. After this I looked, and the heavenly temple, the tabernacle of the testimony, was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues, dressed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes wrapped around their chests. One of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And then the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Chapter 16, verse 1, John says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. And as we make our way through chapter 16, as we see these seven bowls of God's wrath, they're going to sound really familiar. They're a lot like the seven seals and the seven trumpets that we saw earlier in Revelation. We've seen this cycle of God's judgment pretty much the same. And it's going to follow the same pattern here. God's going to pour out judgment on the seas and the rivers. He's going to pour out judgment on people through plagues and diseases. But there's something that's going to be really different this time. Before, God only judged a third of the seas. God only judged a third of the rivers. God only judged a third of humanity. This time around, there's not going to be any fractions. No fractions involved this time. What we're about to see is the final judgment at the end of the age. Seven plagues wrought by seven angels, the number of completion. So this is the complete and final wrath of God against all unrighteousness. Verse 2. It says this, The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and severely painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped its image. It's important to see what John's saying here. He's saying that the mark of the beast is what you get when you worship the beast. When you worship something, you become like that thing. That's the mark of the beast. You start to look like the beast. 
you resemble what you revere. If you revere power, respect, and prosperity, like the beast does, like Satan and his kingdom do, then you become like the beast. And God will judge that. Verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea. It turned to blood like that of a dead person, and all life in the sea died. The third poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters say, you are just, the holy one, who is and who was, because you've passed judgment on these things. John is giving us this picture of God's wrath, his final judgment on the world as this picture of just complete and utter destruction. Think about pictures that you've seen of Florida after a hurricane, Japan after the tsunami, Haiti after the earthquake, and then you have kind of a mental picture of what's going on here. Now, John's using symbolism, so we don't know exactly what this is going to look like, but we do know that, that one day God's judgment is going it, to affect everybody on earth. You won't be able to get food from the sea. You won't be able to get fresh water from the rivers. Even if it isn't exactly like that, somehow, whatever God's judgment looks like, it'll make every person on the planet wake up and go, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is serious. Our, our technology can't save us from this. The government can't save us from this. The United Nations can't save us from this. Whatever this is, it sounds terrifying. It sounds really bad. But that's actually good news. It shows you why, why God's justice is good. Number one, because it's serious. It's good because it's serious. I mean, a serious wrong calls for a serious response. Say somebody killed one of your kids and, and a jury found that guy guilty, but then the judge comes to sentencing, sentencing time and he says, well, yeah, this guy's guilty of murder, but he volunteered at an animal shelter. I feel like that kind of outweighs, and so I'm, I'm just going to give him community service. How would you respond to that? I mean, you would be outraged. You'd be like... Yeah, yeah, he might have saved a thousand cats, but he murdered my son. Well, we murdered God's son. We, the human race, we attacked the God who created us and cared for us. That's a serious wrong. And it calls for a serious response. That's why God's justice is good, because it's serious. And then number two, because it's fair. It's what we all deserve. Look at what the angel says in verse 6. It says, because they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, you've given them blood to drink. They deserve it. I heard the altar say, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. They deserve it. People deserve God's justice because of the conscious choices that they've made to reject God and embrace the beast. J.I. Packer, he said it really well. He said, nobody stands under the wrath of God except for those who've chosen to do so. Nobody stands under the wrath of God except those who have chosen to do so. Now, I know that your friends who don't know Jesus wouldn't think about it that way. They don't say, I'm choosing to stand under the wrath of God. No. But they do say, yeah, I'd rather party in hell than 
get stuck in some eternal worship service in heaven. I'd rather be with my friends in hell than be with some uptight God in heaven. They might not say that out loud. They say that in their hearts. And so deep down, everybody on this planet knows that hell is voluntary. It's completely voluntary. You don't go there unless you choose to go there. I mean, in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, that story that Jesus told, when the rich man went to hell, never once did he complain that it was unfair. He never said, this is really unjust. No. He said, it's kind of hot. Could, could somebody get me a cup of water? But that's all. Even the people who are under God's judgment realize, understand that God's judgment is just and fair. And that's because, number three, God's justice is also slow. Slow. He is patient, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's the idea you get in the next few bowls. Look at verse 8. It says, The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. It was allowed to scorch people with fire, and people were scorched by the intense heat. And so they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. The fifth poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues because of their pain and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they did not repent of their works. Did you hear that twice? Twice people did not repent, even though they've been warned over and over and over again about the coming justice of God. God never judges anyone until he's given them every opportunity to repent. That's why Israel spent 400 years in Egypt. It's one of the big reasons why. As they were starting their time in Egypt, God said to Israel, I'm not going to send you back to Canaan until the iniquity of the Amorites is complete. In other words, until the sin of the Canaanites is fully made manifest. I'm going to give them every opportunity to repent before I bring them to ruin. I'll give them 400 years to repent. God's justice is slow. So slow. Keep going in verse 12. John says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming from the dragon's mouth, from the beast's mouth, from the mouth of the false prophet. Remember, this is imagery. This is symbolism. He says, they are demonic spirits performing signs who travel to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God, the Almighty. Look. Look, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who is alert and remains clothed so that he may not go around naked and people see his shame. And so they assembled the kings at the place that is called in Hebrew, Armageddon. So at some point, the kings in this world are finally going to decide it's time to do something. God wants to try and destroy us. No, no, no. We'll destroy him. And so they all gather together at this place called Armageddon. We'll talk more about that place when we get to Revelation 19. But for now, what we need to understand is that what we'll see coming is these leaders gathering to try and attack God at this battle, great battle of Armageddon, but the battle never happens. You, you probably heard rumors about this 
battle at Armageddon that's coming. It never happens, according to Revelation. Jesus shows up, and these guys get wiped out. The most powerful people on the planet have no power against God's justice. And I think here's another big reason why God's justice is so good. Number four, because it's impartial. It's impartial. Your status, your wealth, your power, your skin color has no bearing on how God's justice is applied to you. No bearing at all. That's something we all long for. That's why we have statues of of ladies with blindfolds in front of our courthouses. We want justice to be blind. Problem is, that's never going to happen in a fallen world filled with fallen people. And so there's one kind of justice for the rich and powerful, and there's another kind of justice for the poor and disconnected. The kind of justice that you get depends on how good of an attorney you can afford or which connections you can take advantage of. That's one of the reasons why we've had all these scandals that have been revealed over the last couple of years in Hawaii. Because there are people in power who just assumed that they were immune from justice. They assumed that because most of the time in this world, they are. If you're rich and powerful and connected, you can get out of justice in a lot of different ways. But the reality is, according to Revelation, no one is immune from God's justice. No one on the planet. It says in Hebrews 9, it is appointed for people to die once, and after this, judgment. It's appointed for all people to die. You've got an appointment with death. Might not be on your calendar, but it's on God's calendar. It's not in pencil, it's in ink. There's no changing it. No changing the time or the date of your appointment. It's coming. You can try and postpone it. Like I saw a story this week but a guy in California who spent $2 million, $2 million on all these procedures and treatments to try and de-age himself 27 years because he wants to live so much longer. He, he's 45 years old. By the way, of course he's from California, right? A guy like, it has to be a California guy, right? He's 45 years old, but he wants to have the brain, heart, lungs, liver, kidneys, tendons, teeth, skin, hair, and bladder of an 18-year-old. And so he spent $2 million so far to try and make that happen. He can try. He can try, but Proverbs 8 says there is no authority over the day of death. You're not going to live a single day longer than God decides. Not a day. And then you'll face God's judgment. And God's judgment is unstoppable. That's the idea of the seventh and final bowl. Look at verse 17. John says, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake occurred like no other since people have been on the earth. So great was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered in God's presence, and he gave her the cup filled with the wine of his fierce anger. Every island fled, and the mountains disappeared. Enormous hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell from the sky on people, and they blasphemed God for the plague of hail because that plague was extremely severe. They still didn't repent. They still won't repent. Even though the final judgment of God on the world has begun. This is it right here. 
We don't know how much of this destruction is going to be physical, like it sounds here, how much will be political and social and personal, because there's all kinds of symbols that John's given us here. In the ancient world, the great city of Babylon was a symbol for humanity coming together to make a name for itself in opposition to God. So when the great city Babylon is split into three parts, that's God destroying our pride and our self-dependence. The mountains, that's where the ancient pagans went to worship their gods, their idols. And so when God flattens the mountains, that means he is destroying the idols that we depend on, the, the things in this world that we value more than him. The islands, that's where humans took refuge from the cold, dark chaos of the sea. Remember, in the ancient world, the sea wasn't a playground like it is for us. It was a place of evil and, and, and fear. And the islands were the one place in the middle of the sea where you could find refuge. Well, if God is making the islands flee, we've got no refuge left. God's taken away our security and comfort once and for all. Because God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, but God's kindness doesn't last forever. God is patient, not wanting any to perish, but his patience doesn't last forever. Someday, at some point, God has to deal with evil once and for all. If he didn't do it, he wouldn't be good. So here's one last reason why God's justice is so good. Not only is it serious and fair and slow and impartial, number five, God's justice is final. It's final. Like it says in the seventh bowl, it is done. All wrongs are going to be righted. All wickedness is going to be ended. All hatred and conflict and abuse and murder is going to be obliterated. It's done. John said in Revelation 15 that one day God's wrath will be finished. It's a very significant word because in John's gospel, Jesus said the exact same thing just before he died. As he hung there on the cross, he said it is finished. Same author, same word. It is finished because if you've put your trust in Jesus, then everything that needs to be done to deal with your son, to deal with your sin is finished. Everything that needs to be done to reconcile you to God is finished. Everything that needs to be done to bring God's blessing is finished. And it was finished when God carried out his justice on his son Jesus instead of you. And so the horror of God's wrath that you see here in Revelation, it's meant to help you understand the horror of God's wrath that Jesus experienced on the cross. If this sounds scary to you, what we've been reading here, then you've got just a small taste of the scary things that Jesus experienced. So scary that, that, he, that he sweat blood the night before he went to the cross. He bore the excruciating wrath of God in your place. The wrath that's coming on the whole world that we deserve. Here's the thing. We can't sit here and be like, well, praise God that his wrath isn't coming on me. It's coming on all those people, those, those wicked people out there. They deserve it. 
but I've got Jesus, so I, I can just kick back and relax. I can get some popcorn, just watch this whole thing go down. I'm good. No, man, that's not the response that Jesus wants you to take from this passage. Because Jesus said in verse 15, I'm coming like a thief, and so blessed is the one who is alert and remains clothed. Because Jesus knows it's so tempting for us to get complacent with his grace. It's so easy for his forgiveness to kind of lull us to sleep, just to nod off while the house around us is getting robbed. Kind of like the teachers that you had in high school who would mess with you when you fell asleep in their class. You remember? Did you have any of those teachers? I had a teacher in high school who, uh, whenever a kid fell asleep in his class, he would start getting really quiet, and then he would get the rest of the class to sneak out of the room and turn off the lights so you would wake up alone in the dark. That's what he wanted you to experience. You don't want to be that kid, is what Jesus is saying here. Which is why he says all through Revelation, all through the Gospels, over and over, you've got to stay alert. You don't know when I'm coming back. I'm like a thief. Or there's another metaphor Jesus uses in Mark 13. He says, I'm like a landlord coming back to visit my property. If you're a renter, you know what that feels like. Your landlord emails you and you look around the house and you're like, oh, there's like an inch thick of dog hair on the floor. Guess I should figure out what the vacuum is, you know? Guess I should clean up the motor oil from the engine I was rebuilding on the dining room table. Guess I should take care of this right now. Well, here's the difference between Jesus and your landlord. You get 24 hours notice from your landlord. You get zero notice from Jesus. He can come at any time. And so you've got to stay alert all the time. And so I want to close with three ways to stay alert. Three things that we got to get serious about if we're going to stay awake and alert and ready for Jesus to return. Number one, get serious about abiding in Christ. Jesus says, you got to abide in me, which means maybe for you, just taking the step of putting your trust in Jesus for the very first time, putting your life in his hands for the very first time, confessing your sin to him and receiving his forgiveness for the very first time. Because he died on the cross to take away your sin and he rose from the grave to give you new life. And he's being patient with you right now, but his patience doesn't last forever. So today is the day for you to receive his grace and avoid the wrath that's coming onto the whole world. Today is the day to make Jesus your savior and your king. And then receive the mark of the lamb. Become like Jesus rather than having the mark of the beast and becoming like the beast. The way you become more like Jesus is to spend time with Jesus every day. That's why we've got the devotional challenge that we're doing this year. We've got the books out in the bookstore. We keep getting refreshed every week because you guys keep grabbing them every week. I don't know when we're finally going to sell you enough of these things. It's such a great book, and, and I'm hoping that as you do this devotional I mean, you could spend 90 seconds a day on it. I really hope you're not doing that. Our prayer for you is that you're using this devotional as a springboard for, for meditating deeply on God's word and a, a springboard to spend serious time in prayer, serious prayer. We want you to get serious about abiding in Christ this year. That's how we get ready for his return. And then number two, get serious about killing sin. 
killing sin. We've got to confess it to God, confess it to a trusted friend, and then take radical steps to get rid of it. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Jesus said, sometimes if there's persistent sin in your life, you've got to do radical spiritual surgery on it. If your eye's causing you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand's causing you to sin, cut it off. In other words, there might be some things in your life that are really valuable to you, but they're leading you into sin, and so you're going to have to get rid of them. There's a post on the uh, Ask Pastor Matt section of the Harbor app says more about dealing with persistent sin because if we want to be ready for Jesus' return, we got to deal with it. we got to get serious about killing sin and then get serious about blessing others. Get serious about discipling your family. Fathers, especially. We get lazy at home. Mothers, you get lazy sometimes too. we got to get serious. we only got a short amount of time with our kids. Get serious about discipling your family. Get serious about getting engaged in a community group. You can find a whole bunch of them out on the rack, out on the lobby. Get serious about encouraging your community group. Get serious about displaying and proclaiming the gospel to your friends who don't know Jesus. Get serious about serving your church family. We've got 20 volunteers that we need just in the caking ministry right now. Right now. We've got a skeleton crew taking care of your kids right now. I don't know if you really want that. It's time to volunteer. Get serious about blessing the world. We've got a great opportunity this summer to do ministry in Vietnam and Japan. We're going to be partnering with our sister church in Tokyo, traveling together to Vietnam, ministering in Vietnam, and then returning to do a couple of luau's in Tokyo and minister to their neighborhood there all together. It's going to be fantastic. There's details in your bulletin about how you can be involved in that. Family, Jesus is coming back, and so we've got to stay awake got to stay alert. We don't know the day or the hour of his second coming, but we do know this, that at his first coming, he empowered us to glorify God, to serve the people around us. And he did that through the death and resurrection of his son, through the justice he carried out on his son. And so we can celebrate that today. It is finished. The wrath of God is finished because it was carried out on Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, as we hear these images, horrifying images, of what's going to take place at some point in the future, all we can do is praise you that the horror of your wrath will not be carried out on us who put our trust in Jesus because it was carried out on Jesus in our place. And so we can celebrate the fact that it is finished. Everything that needs to be done to deal with our sin is finished. Everything that needs to be done to restore us to you is finished. Everything that needs to be done to bring your blessing in our lives is finished. Help us to rest in that and then help us to be energized by that. We don't know how much time we got left. Could be an hour, could be a day, could be a month. We don't know. Energize us by the finished work of Christ to be a blessing to our families, our neighborhood, our islands, and our world. Help us to go forward 
boldness and courage because it is finished.